The Jews were dispossessed. We were flung to the far corners of the earth, uh, suffered unimaginable suffering because we had no homeland. But we didn't disappear. And we never gave up the dream of coming back to our ancestral homeland. So generation after generation, Jews could be in Warsaw, they could be in Yemen, they could be in, uh, they could be in China. And they said, next year in Jerusalem, we'll come back next year in Jerusalem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part four of this Zion-tology series. In the last episode, I looked at the origins of Zionist ideology in 16th century Christianity. I'm now going to examine the emergence of Zionism in the Jewish community. As I previously stated, Jewish Zionism is a much later development than its Christian counterpart. It came about in the late 19th century, coalescing in the first Zionist Congress of 1897. This is a kind of birth year for the movement. In the opening clip, you heard Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu claim that Jewish people had, for over a thousand years, desired to return to their perceived homeland. These sentiments are captured in the 1948 Declaration of the Establishment of the State of Israel, which reads, After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. End quote. This position is, to say the least, contested. In his book, the Invention of the Jewish People, history professor Shlomo Sand contends the very idea of Jews having an ethnic rather than religious identity is a product of the 19th century. It emerged at a time when nationalism was rising as an ideology, gathering formerly disparate peoples into shared identities. No History of the Jews was written for 1600 years after the Roman Jewish historian Josephus composed his book of that title. The first effort was made at the end of the 17th century by a French Protestant who presented them as a religious sect, persecuted by the Catholic Church. In 1820, the German-Jewish historian Isaac Marcus Jost published a history that emphasised, whilst they shared a common origin and religion, Jewish communities were not separate members of a single body. They were not an alien people in Europe. Rather, they were as much a part of the nations they belonged to as anyone else. Jost wrote that, quote, They loved their brethren in Jerusalem and wished them peace and prosperity, but they cherished their new homeland more. They prayed with their blood brothers, but they went to war with their country brothers. They were friendly toward their blood brothers, but they shed their blood for their homeland. End quote. This work was an effort to promote integration at a time of anti-Semitic suspicion. Professor Sand attributes the first attempt to invent the Jewish people to historian Heinrich Gratz in the 1850s. Whereas Jost had seen the Jews as part of the nations they lived in, Gratz contended Jews constituted a nation. He considered religious identity to be secondary to national identity. In addition to the rise of nationalism, this period of European history saw the proliferation of race-based theories of human differences. In 1850, Scotsman Robert Knox published his book The Races of Man, where he contended that race, or hereditary descent, is everything. Three years later, Arthur de Gobineau published an essay with the self-explanatory title On the Inequality of the Human Races. In 1862, 
German-Jewish philosopher Moses Hess wrote, Rome and Jerusalem, the last nationalist question. Hess saw race as a primary driver of historical conflict, and considered the Jewish people to constitute a distinct race that had conserved its purity throughout the centuries. It was then this racial distinction, as opposed to cultural factors, that underpinned anti-Semitism. Hess therefore advocated for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine as the only viable solution. Whilst the idea of a return to the Holy Land plays a central role in Judaism, some of the strongest opponents to Zionism are religious Jews. They see this return as something that should only happen after the coming of the Messiah, and contend any attempt to establish a Jewish state as being entirely antithetical to Judaism. We can hear this from modern anti-Zionist rabbi David Weiss. The Jewish religion forbids since the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago, we were given an edict, a decree by God, uh, it's a prophecy of King Solomon, that we ought not to attempt to recreate our sovereignty. Even one inch of Jewish sovereignty, even in an uninhabited land, is expressly forbidden. And what we Jews wait for the day when God will make a miracle where all humanity will serve him in harmony. Uh, we won't have to convince an atheist that there is a God, everybody will recognize God, and then we will all go up and serve him. Prior to that event, we are expressly forbidden to try to attempt to make any Jewish uh, nationalism sovereignty, and this was respected and upheld by Jews throughout the, the trials and tribulations of the Inquisition, the Crusades, and every time period of Judaism when they were easily capable of buying land. They never did it because they understood this is against the will of the Almighty and this is not what it means to be a Jew. This sentiment is found in the 19th century, with various Jewish groups eschewing the idea of a literal return. One of the principles laid out by the 1885 reform movement reads, quote, we recognize, in the modern era of universal culture of heart and intellect, the approaching of the realization of Israel's great messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among all men. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. End quote. Obviously, as with all religious arguments, this is hotly contested, and it's beyond the scope of this series to dig too deeply into Judaism. The phrase, next year in Jerusalem, is often spoken during Jewish festivals, in the same way a glass is smashed at weddings to represent the destruction of the temple. It's hard to know how Jewish people over thousands of miles and hundreds of years have understood these acts. Zionists can take a very literal interpretation, where the greatest desire of all Jews in history has been to resettle in a particular geographical region. Shlomo Sand writes of the concept of exile and return as having a spiritual connotation, where the divine spirit is exiled into this material world. The smashing of the glass at a wedding can also act as a reminder of the fragility of love, and the impermanence of all things. Jewish efforts to actually return to Palestine over the centuries were quite limited. There were attempts to establish communities there in the 15th century for Jews fleeing the Portuguese Inquisition. This was after an effort to create a colony on Cyprus failed. 
The move to Palestine also had to be abandoned due to war breaking out between the Papal States and Ottoman Empire. The majority of Portugal's Jews ultimately fled across Europe, as far away as Constantinople. During the 17th century, many French Jews prepared to return to Palestine in the belief that the Messiah had finally arrived. This followed on from a massive outburst of anti-Semitic violence in Ukraine. The Messiah figure, Zabatai Sevi, ultimately converted to Islam to get out of trouble with the Ottoman Sultan, bringing this episode to an end. A group of around 500 Jews emigrated from Lithuania to Jerusalem in the early 19th century. Overcoming incredible hardships, they were successful and supported later Zionist efforts to develop agriculture in the region. Not all attempts to create a Jewish homeland aimed at doing so in the Middle East. In 1825, prominent Jewish American Mordecai Manuel Noah helped purchase a plot of land in New York State for this purpose. There were efforts to develop Jewish agriculture in Palestine starting in the 1850s. I'm going to select the 1880s as the practical beginning of Zionism, however, as it corresponds with a rise in the major driving force behind all Zionist efforts, anti-Semitism. In my heart, I am gladdened when I beat the Jews. Eventually, this practice cannot, of course, be permitted. We must never forget that it was the Jews who crucified our Lord and spilled his precious blood. Jewish people have a long history of European anti-Semitism to look back upon. Whilst persecution in the form of expulsions and forced conversions is present throughout the first millennium, anti-Semitism seems to dramatically increase in the 11th century. This coincides with the First Crusade, which was essentially a religious justification of the killing of non-believers. Obviously this was directed at Muslims in the Holy Land, but many crusaders didn't see why it shouldn't apply to the Christ-killers in their midst. This was accentuated because Jews were the only people permitted to practice money-lending, and many crusaders had borrowed money to arm themselves. In spite of protests from the Catholic Church, the Rhineland massacres saw thousands of Jews slaughtered. This persecution continued through the centuries. Jews were expelled from England in the 13th century, whilst in the 14th they were blamed for the Black Death and burnt alive in their thousands. The 15th saw them expelled from Spain, and in the 17th at least tens of thousands were massacred in Poland. The clip I played a moment ago was of Russian Tsar Alexander III. He came to power in 1881, after the murder of his father. This marked the end of a time of relative toleration for Jews in the Russian Empire. Their perceived role in the assassination, one of the ten conspirators was Jewish, led to the passing of suppressive laws and widespread anti-Semitic pogroms. Thousands of Jewish homes were burned and many Jews murdered. These pogroms were numerous, but to give an example, I'll cite a New York Times article on the Kishinev massacre of 1903. Quote, The mob was led by priests, and the general cry, kill the Jews, was taken up all over the city. The Jews were taken wholly unaware and were slaughtered like sheep. The dead number 120, and the injured about 500. The scenes of horror attending this massacre are beyond description. Babies were literally torn to pieces by the frenzied and bloodthirsty mob. The local police made no attempt to check the reign of terror. 
At sunset, the streets were piled with corpses and wounded. Those who could make their escape fled in terror, and the city is now practically deserted of Jews. End quote. From 1881 to 1917, around 2 million Jews fled Russia. Most resettled in the United States and Argentina, with some emigrating to Palestine. This is the situation early Zionists were faced with, both a long history of persecution and an immediate crisis. At this point, my comparison, made in the first episode, of Zionism to Scientology is at its weakest. Whereas the latter may have been designed as an exploitative cult, the former had all the justification in the world behind it. In 1896, the man heralded as the father of modern Zionism, Austrian-born Jew Theodor Herzl, published his book, The Jewish State. Herzl reasoned, not unreasonably, that whilst anti-Semitism showed no signs of abating in Russia, it was also likely to increase in the West, due to the influx of Jewish refugees. Integration had been tried for over a thousand years and failed. The only solution to the Jewish problem was therefore a Jewish state. Now, you may recall Pastor John Hagee in the last episode saying, Theodore Herzl is the father of Zionism. He was a Jew that at the turn of the 19th century said, this land is our land. God wants us to live there. That's actually not true. Herzl was not a religious man and never made a theological argument for Jewish possession of Palestine. He was at least equally open to the Jewish state being in Argentina, and seemed to favour that in his earlier writing. He also entertained a British offer of land in East Africa, which fell apart for practical as well as ideological reasons. Herzl's fellow Zionists, whilst also not necessarily religious, favoured Palestine for reasons of sentiment and tradition. In his book, Herzl paints an overwhelmingly positive picture of what this new country will look like. He describes the benefits it will bring, not only to the Jewish people, but to humanity as a whole. In his conclusion, he writes, quote, Therefore I believe that a wondrous generation of Jews will spring into existence. The Maccabeans will rise again. Let me repeat once more my opening words. The Jews who wish for a state will have it. We shall live at last as free men on our own soil, and die peacefully in our own homes. The world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness, and whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of humanity. End quote. It could be said that an ethnostate is always going to trip up over its own contradictions. What exactly constitutes a Jew being the first one of them? They are also certainly not in line with modern sensibilities where an English state for the genetically English would be seen as racist. I think it would be very harsh to judge Herzl by these standards, however. He was a man of his time responding to a grievous situation. Our modern multicultural societies, centred around ideas as opposed to peoples, may contain their own contradictions too. To my reading, Herzl never comes across as an immoral man. If he could have found an entirely empty piece of land to build his state upon, its history would certainly be very different. What Herzl does do is engage in wishful thinking and moral compromise. Quote, When we occupy the land, we shall bring immediate benefits to the state that receives us. We must expropriate gently 
the private property on the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries, while denying it any employment in our own country. The property owners will come over to our side. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. It goes without saying that we shall respectfully tolerate persons of other faiths and protect their property, their honour and their freedom with the harshest means of coercion. This is another area in which we shall set the entire world a wonderful example. Should there be many such immovable owners in individual areas who would not sell their property to us, we shall simply leave them there and develop our commerce in the direction of other areas which belong to us. End quote. That's an entry from Herzl's diary in 1895. The idea that expropriation can be gentle, and that a penniless population will willingly leave their homeland, whilst not being at all upset about Jewish immigrants denying them employment, is pure fantasy. This colonialist attitude, this willingness to make moral sacrifices is, I would suggest, the start of the rot setting in. Far worse people than Theodore Herzl would ultimately take the reins, and the moral compromises would grow and grow. Herzl died young, in 1904. He was confident that, although he wouldn't live to see it, his dream of a Jewish state would become a reality. Given the optimism of his writing, the wonderful example this state was going to set for the world, I have to wonder what he would make of modern-day Israel, a state with the world's largest concentration camp, where thousands of civilians are periodically slaughtered. On the other hand, given the horrors of the Holocaust, perhaps he would feel he was more right than he knew. I'll wrap up here, but just a note, Zionism at this point remains a very small movement, and not one that is embraced by the vast majority of Jews. It's not until the 1940s that it gained broad support, for obvious reasons. Thank you for listening. As I've given a brief overview of the whys of Zionism here, in the next episode I'll look at how it was brought about. I'll particularly focus on the key issue of land ownership. Sources, as well as my details, are available in the info box. If you're finding this project informative, then any donations are sincerely appreciated. I've also included a link to Christian Aid's Gaza Crisis Appeal. Thanks again. 